tonight I'd like to look into the word of refuge. And it's a word that in the last few years deeply speaks to me. It's like I love this word. It's a sweet, I called it today, sweet medicine. You know, this word refuge. And I'd like to kind of go into that a little bit tonight and see what we can make of it together. I want to start off with reading uh, an email that I received from a friend about uh, a month ago. And it's actually a teacher, a teacher friend. And he said, after a week retreat, on the last night, two teachers asked us to go out to dinner, and we were in a big car accident on the freeway. We are all okay, aside from some minor injuries and general physical trauma. It was the worst accident I have ever been in, careening across the freeway and back in traffic, culminating with 360-degree spin-out and crashing into the center divide. Practice, as always, served us well. The ambulance people couldn't believe how low our heart rates and blood pressure were. (laughs) So here's, I, my, my blood pressure went up a little bit while I was reading it. You know, here's a, here's a situation that's very, very traumatic. It's one of those instances where conditions come together in such a way, and bam, totally out of the blue, something completely unexpected. Fortunately, in this case, there wasn't anybody who was really hurt in this accident, and people came out okay, except a little physical trauma. Uh, physical, emotional trauma. But what I was struck by when I read the email was the line, practice as always served us well. Because how often do we find, particularly people who have been involved in the Dharma for some time, or even people who have newly found the Dharma in recent months or the last year or so, how often that phrase might arise, thank goodness for the Dharma. Thank goodness for the Dharma. Thank goodness for my practice. And it's something that I, as a person who's been involved with the Dharma for a number of years, I hear it so many times. What is that? What does that mean when people say, thank goodness for the Dharma. Thank goodness for my practice something that feels very precious, very, uh, may say, priceless. This thing called the Dharma and the practice that we, practices that we learn. When I looked up the word refuge in the dictionary, it said a place that offers protection. A place that offers protection or protection or shelter as from danger or hardship. Another definition was a source of help, relief, or comfort in times of trouble. And it seems that that actually is a very good description of our practice, some kind of protection in times of trouble or hardship. 
somewhere that we can go, something we can draw on. Some ways we may say it's our refuge, gives us a place of refuge. For myself, I came to the practice about um, 25 years ago or so. And at that time, I was, I would say that I, in all, you know, technical terms, was having a nervous breakdown in my life at that time and didn't know which way to turn, where to go, what to, what to do, feeling totally helpless in myself and began asking people for some help and saw a one woman turn me towards meditation. And for me, very quickly, after a week or two weeks, I found a very, very uh, quick shift in my uh, sense of relief just from finding some inner refuge, some place that I could go and rest within myself through the practice of meditation. It seems that our minds can become so complex. You know, life can feel like it's just bound with complexity, impacting, very difficult. And sometimes we don't know where to turn, what to do, where to go. Somebody was talking about that in the inquiry today as well not knowing where to go sometimes. I want to read something from a man named A.H. A. Almas, who some of you might know. He's living in the Bay Area. Wonderful teacher, also known as Hamid, running the uh, Ridwan School here and around the world. He says... Our minds have become so complex in our attempt to deal with our ignorance and distrust. Our minds are split into so many fragments that are constantly fighting with reality and with each other. Because our minds are so complicated and disharmonious, it takes a lot of work, intelligence, and energy to penetrate the thick complexity and darkness to discover what the actual truth of reality is. Reality itself is very simple and straightforward, but we can't see that simplicity. We can't see the normality of our natural state. And I love that last line, the normality of our natural state. Because in some ways, the meditation, the teaching, the Dharma, tries to get us to awake, awaken to, to feel into our normal state, our natural state. You know, so when we come to retreat and we just sit and walk and sit and walk, we keep it so simple so that there might be the possibility of just dropping into those simple ways of being, just simply sitting, simply walking, simply eating, lying down, brushing the teeth. Something natural may emerge within our being that we've lost touch with through the bombardment and the complexities of our daily life. Because we lose touch. We lose connection with that simplicity because our mind makes things so complex. Certainly, on retreat, when we simplify the environment in the way that we have, we can see how complex we make things. You know, we're fe- for example, we might be feeling tired. And rather than just simply resting or maybe even going back to the room and, and taking a rest when the body feels very, very tired, we say, 
all, the mind starts all kinds of, of uh, comments about, you know, you shouldn't, it's really wrong, you know, you're not a good meditator, you really got to stay here, you know, getting really firm. Mm-hmm. Or I should have rested better last night, and now I'm really tired, and what's wrong with me that I can't be, feel more energy, or all kinds of ways that we might talk to ourselves. You know, not necessarily even just on the retreat, but in our daily lives, when we're feeling like we just need to lie down and, and read the newspaper. Nope, I can't lie down. I've got things to do. This is just a waste of time. Can't really be sometimes with just that simple energy in the mind and the body that feels tired, responding to it. Or if we're feeling hungry. You know, sometimes we have such complex relationships to hunger and to food. And rather than just eating something when we're hungry, oh, I shouldn't be eating now, I, eat, I ate too much before, or um, this isn't the kind of food I should be eating, I should be eating this kind of food, um, this, is, this isn't the time. I mean, all kinds of, of, of complicated ways that we make out of it, rather than just simply responding to a feeling of hunger. Now, mind makes things so complicated. And then we get into all kinds of judging and criticizing and commenting and evaluating. And we see this. But really what's happening is we're losing connection with that simple state. The simplicity of our natural being. And here we might feel at times too how we can get into the rhythm of a day. You know, we can move to the sitting and the walking and then going for maybe a little stroll and then walking to the dining room and, and feeling more connected just to, this, to, the, to the movements of the day. Easy rhythm. And certainly as the days go on, we might feel more uh, settled in that rhythm, rhythm of the retreat. And we feel an inner ease, an inner contentment, uh, a joy that starts to arise in that. We might say that as we start to rest into the simplicity of our being, that we're coming into a place of basic trust. Basic trust. And that basic trust, we might say, is a confidence in a dimension of being where things are essentially okay. It's a confidence where we really can sense that things are okay. Kind of a sense that if we let go, if we really let go, if we let go and we trust into things, that in some ways we'll be held. We'll be held by some dimension of our being. And with that trust, there is a deep relaxation. We can feel a deep relaxation that starts to occur, where the joy and some ease and contentment starts to arise. And with that, we have the confidence that things are workable. Things of life are manageable. Kind of deep trust in that. There's a teacher that many of you know of, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was the teacher uh, uh, from the Naropa Institute, a Tibetan teacher, very, very well known in the 70s. He calls that connection with this basic trust the lion's roar. 
the lion's roar, kind of a, a roar or a roar in life where we really can, uh, we have the confidence in life itself. This is from uh, Trungpa. He says, the lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including the emotions, is a workable situation, a reminder in the practice of meditation. We realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we regard them as regressive, as a return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. When I heard this a long time ago, that line, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news, it really penetrated. Because I certainly came from a place where I didn't think chaos was good news at all. You know, chaos and confusion and the, and the way that life can, can impact. But to get into that sense and into that feeling that even chaos is good news, that it's workable, that somehow it's manageable. And we can begin to trust into that. We can feel into that and let go. And it doesn't mean that as we do come into this trust or this, this place of letting go, that the experiences in our life begin to even out. And I talked about this the other night too. It's not like as we start to understand more deeply the teachings of the Dharma, that it's like a magic wand and all of a sudden we feel this ecstasy, ecstasy in ourselves. But there's, it's more, I think it's more of an attitude. It's a more of a way that we, we uh, respond to the conditions of life. From a place of this trust. Basic trust is what I'm calling it tonight. I have this um, cartoon that I love, and I've decided I'm actually going to get a nice photocopy of it and put it on my wall in my house. And it's a cartoon. I'll put it up later. There's a picture of a, of a Zen monk sitting on a porch, on a patio. It's a, one of those uh, Japanese patios. And he's looking out over a beautiful Japanese garden with the Japanese trees and the plants and the little uh, sculptures in the, in the sky. He's just sitting very still, just sitting very still, looking out. And behind him is a screen, a Japanese screen, and, and painted on the Japanese screen is an ocean and palm trees and... and uh, it's a very serene, beautiful painting. And then what you see behind the screen is a pile of junk. <laughs> it's like somebody who had a garage sale or something, you know, just put everything back on one side. And it's just piled up, you know, almost as high as the screen, just all this junk. You know, old chairs and guitars and lamps and, you know, toilet seats and, you know, everything just piled up. So everything around him, of course, there's, the appearance is total serenity. You can't see all the crap, all the junk. But it's not too far away. <laughs> you know, probably only about three feet. But in a way, it's sort of what we do, you know, what we do in our own minds, is somehow we separate out 
the garbage. We come somehow try to try to get the appearance of something very wonderful, very beautiful in front of us, but you know, just somehow try to hide, hide the junk, just so it won't penetrate, it won't come in somehow. But I think what I'm going to do is right next to this cartoon, I'm going to make another little cartoon. And in the cartoon, it's going to say, um, after enlightenment. <laughs> and then the little monk's going to be sitting right in the middle of the room with all the garbage scattered all around him. <laughs> and that's so that there's, you know, there's no difference. It's manageable. It's workable. You know, that sense it doesn't, you know, it's okay. Okay, so there's garbage. <laughs> so there's junk. <laughs> you know, how, how can we find a way of making that uh, uh, workable in our lives, in ourselves, within our own mind? We do come to meditation practices for a kind of refuge. You know, and certainly for uh, myself, I felt that very, very quickly. And same for many of you, you do feel a kind of refuge. But the difficulty is, is that we can be so filled with hope and fear about our meditation experiences that, in fact, we can lose that sense of ease, that contentment, simplicity in ourselves because we want these certain experiences to happen based on our ideas, our assumptions about how Things are supposed to go, like Christopher was talking about last night, this development of the personality into certain experiences. And so in a similar way, it's like we want to push all that unpleasantness, the confusion, the garbage, the darkness, you know, kind of push it back and somehow create this environment that's going to be very serene, very pleasing for us. But we stay caught in that duality, in that complexity, of what we like or what the self wants and what the self doesn't want, and then we feel that fragmentation and that split. Mark Epstein, who uh, some of you may know wrote the book Thought Without a Thinker, he said from that book, people hope that engaging in methods of stress reduction or meditation will dissolve tensions into a pool of blissful feelings that will make them one with the universe. You know, somehow that just all that will dissolve. And he says it's a popular misconception of selflessness. You know, that the emotions dissolving into ecstatic union into a trance state with loss of ego boundaries or a numb state in which nothing need to be felt. You know, that's kind of what we pray for, <laughs> is so that we won't have to feel anything anymore. Somehow, you know, to, to go into this boundless state where there is no more sense of ego boundaries or uh, the, the emotions aren't really impacting or penetrating. You know, but this isn't... This isn't really what the teachings are pointing to. This is not really what selflessness is. These states are temporary, and we can't find refuge in these states because they will disappear. They don't last. 
And what good are they anyhow? Because when we leave here, we have to get in a car, we have to uh, drive down the freeway, we have to walk across the street, we have to make phone calls. What good is it going to be if we're just in a state of <laughs> numb state with no sense of ego and, and kind of lost in this ec ecstatic uh, uh, state of mind? It's not really a very uh, good functioning state. So we've got to, you know, be here, be here. And being here means to uh, deal with all the ex ex conditions of life, whether we like them or not like them. So we can't really take refuge in these experiences of meditation. It misleads us, it misguides us from a true refuge, a deeper refuge. When we lose this sense of basic trust, when we are separated from this within ourselves, we also can uh, mislead ourselves by taking refuge in things, in material things. And it's really the same as looking for experiences, looking for pleasant or, or, or uh, pleasurable experiences. Because when we go to ref take refuge in these material things, we're looking for comfort. We're looking for pleasure. We're looking for some release from the dukkha or the pain of our self or our existence. We're looking for some way that we can kind of, again, surround ourselves with beautiful or pleasurable, pleasurable or, or, or things that are going to bring a sense of serenity. And again, it just pushes all that junk back behind the screen because we're not really in life. We're not really engaging. We're not really dealing with things. So taking refuge in things is another way to escape from our deeper refuge, the possibility of something deeper for ourselves. So as we start to understand this, as we, as we practice and and start to uh, more, more deeply understand what the teachings are pointing to, we begin to let go. We begin to let go. We begin to let go of our attachment to material things. We let go of our attachment to experiences. And we keep letting go and keep letting go, and we start to touch that, touch that simplicity, start to come back into our normal state our normal state. When we come to a Buddhist practice, meditation, the meditation practice is really only one aspect of the Dharma teachings. Traditionally, to become a Buddhist, one takes refuge in the triple gem or the three jewels, which have been mentioned a few times here on the retreat so far. These are called the threefold refuge. And this threefold refuge is a support for the mind, for the mind that runs out, that moves out towards things, towards experiences. It's a refuge that points us back to something that is more true. The Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the three jewels. And these are called the three jewels because of their matchless purity. This is what is said, because of their matchless purity. 
And to Buddhists, people who become Buddhists, it's the most precious, these are the most precious objects in the world. They're jewels, they're priceless. And one accepts them as, as guides of one's life and one's thought. So the Buddha, the Buddha, the knower or awakened one, it's the name for a human being who attained perfect wisdom. But the Buddha, the word Buddha really means awake. It points to the mind that is awake, that doesn't get confused about where the true refuge is. The story about the Buddha, it is said that soon after his enlightenment, the Buddha passed a man on the road who was struck by the extraordinary radiance and peacefulness of his presence. The man stopped and asked, my friend, what are you? Are you a celestial being or a god? No, said the Buddha. Well, then, are you some kind of magician or wizard? Again, the Buddha answered, no. Are you a man? No. Well, my friend, what then are you? And the Buddha replied, I am awake. I am awake. So we can take refuge in the Buddha, in the awake mind, in the awake, in the awakened one. The Dharma, the Dharma means teaching. And in the context of the Buddhist teachings, it means the teachings of liberation as discovered and realized and proclaimed by the Buddha. The Dharma, the Dharma teachings, which contains that whole body of very profound realizations. In the original discourses of the Buddha, the ones called Majjhima Nikaya, there's a story where the venerable Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, explains how the Sangha, the community of monks and nuns, maintained its integrity and unity after the passing away of the Buddha. Because the Buddha did not appoint an heir. There was no one to to, uh, take care of the Sangha after the Buddha died. And so it could appear, and it did appear to many of the communities around the uh, Buddhist Sangha, that the Sangha had no refuge after the Buddha died. So a Brahmin asked Ananda, he said, But if you have no refuge, Master Ananda, what is the cause for your harmony? And Ananda replied, We are not without a refuge, Brahman. We have a refuge. We have the Dharma as our refuge. So deeply understanding what the Dharma is as a refuge. And the Sangha, the third jewel in the Triple Gem, The community, the monastic community, traditionally the monastic community of monks and nuns founded by the Buddha. Or the Sangha could be all men and women who go to refuge in the three jewels, who take these three jewels as refuge. Buddhists... Buddhists around the world repeat the Pali chant of taking refuge in these three 
uh, jewels. And sometimes it's chanted here on the retreat as well, uh, not necessarily when we teach, but when others teach. <laughs> Don't do so much chanting. But you could hear the chants of Budang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami. And you hear this chant all over the Asian countries. Budang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sangang Saranangachami. means I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dharma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. You know, deeply taking that in as a place, as a as a place of protection, a place of rest, support for the mind. And as our practice deepens into the Dharma, the Buddha, the Sangha, we can begin to taste the timeless experience of these three jewels. We begin to really experience here and now the awakened mind, right within our own being. We experience the Dharma as the nature that's present right here, the conditions of life that are moving and changing and shifting. And we can experience the Sangha as all things that are interconnected everywhere, right here and now. So the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha become something right here and now that we can rely on, that we can know, that we can experience, that, that becomes part of the fabric of our own being. So having faith, trusting into something which is there for us, which we can access, which we can know. When I was at IMS last week, Insight Meditation Society, teaching there with Christopher for an eight-day retreat, there was a, a yogi who, a yogi, a student who's on the retreat, who came to me and he wanted to understand about the difference between faith and fear. And he came to me and he said he has all this fear sometimes that he's working with, that he deals with. But he can't seem to find the faith. He gets so involved in this particular mind state that faith seems to be so far away. This fear overwhelms his consciousness. And I wanted to point out, and I tried to point out to him, that actually the fear and the faith are not so separate that he didn't actually have to see this in a dualistic perspective. But could there be some faith that ran through the fear? The faith that ran through that, in some ways, this fear is manageable. That this fear is something that he could actually deal with. And knowing that this fear is not solid, it's not, not substantial, that actually it's going to pass away. It rises and passes, passes away. And somehow deepening into that, that trust or that faith that is right there, right in the middle of the fear. Not separate. 
not like we have to change the experience of fear, or he didn't have to change the experience of fear, to feel into the faith, to have some sense of some foundation, some way that he was being held right in the fear. That somehow we don't have to create those divisions, again, how we create the divisions in our own mind that it's either this or that. That we either have this mind state, this complex or difficult or uh, uh, complicated mind state, or we have the faith or we have the, the trust. But somehow, as we go further into the Dharma teaching, starting to feel and know this trust that's running through everything, that basic trust, that knowing that things essentially are okay. Our Dharma practice starts to help us heal these divisions, heal this duality that we create in our own minds. And it's just what we create in our own minds. It's it's what our mind does. The mind sees things in dualistic perception. It's this and that, night and day, girl and boy, uh, here and there, uh, right and wrong. That's the mind. The mind moves in this dualistic perception. But the Dharma practice starts to help us cut through that. So we begin to uh, let go of these fixations of the mind and start to feel, start to intuit, start to sense something else that's running through, that's running through all experience. And so experience itself doesn't have to change that radically. The experience of fear or anger or irritation or joy or uh, happiness or Uh, liking or disliking, but something starts to hold that, contain that, run through that. So our Dharma practice begins to heal this dualistic perception, the way that we fragment and separate ourselves out from things from ourselves, from others, from the environment. We start to see how we create that separation as we move into the teachings. Here on the retreat, being here uh, for the seven days or the ten days, and being in this beautiful, natural environment here, And as the mind starts to quiet down, we start to feel some connection with the environment here itself. And I noticed for myself when I was at IMS, I mean, the, the nature is so strong, particularly at these retreat centers, because the centers are located in these beautiful places. And at the Insight Meditation Society, the retreat center is in the, is in more of a wooded a wooded uh, area, lots of beautiful big old trees, and it was summertime, it was very green. And at this particular week, the, uh, it was very cool and rainy, and we had 
storms. We had some thunderstorms. It was very wild, really. It was quite wonderful. And uh, one morning, there was a storm building up. And the clouds were getting denser and darker. And it was just before breakfast. It was, was actually just, uh, I think the breakfast bell had already rung. Some people were in the dining hall. Some people were watching the storm coming because it was really coming uh, close. And, and then it started to break. And everybody started running into the hall and, and running into the, din- in, into the dining room. And at one point, there was one yogi who reported this, that everybody was sitting along in a big line along the table, the breakfast table, while the storm was going on. And she said at one point, there was such a clap of thunder. It was so loud that because her mind was so, so still, she said in the moment that that thunder clapped, everybody just went up about one foot and then came down. And she said she could just see this whole line of people that just went up and then down. <laughs> you know, it's, it, there was no need to be mindful, you know. It was, there was an instant connection with that thunder. You know, there's no separation in that moment. Just the clap, the, the body responds, everybody jumps up and comes down, all in that one minute, one moment. And that's that connection, that sense of there's no separation whatsoever, you know? And then the, the, the thunder was rolling and rolling, and it was pouring and raining, and everybody was affected by that. It touched each person there on the retreat, the magnificence of that storm blowing through. And so when we get sensitive, we can start to feel that, that there's that dynamic that's alive through through, uh, through ourselves and nature and how, how there's just not very much sense of separation at all. And then when I came here and the environment was so different, you know, quite dry and uh, very spacious at IMS, it's the bil- everything take, kind of takes place in this one building, so it's very contained and very intensely energetic as well. And then you co- I come here and it's very spacious and very blue skies, quite still and quiet and dry. There's a whole different kind of, of sense that comes over, rather than my mind being a little bit more uh, focused and narrow in this way, my mind started becoming very open and very spacious, and almost to the point where I had to help myself stay a bit more alert and awake, because the, the spaciousness and the, 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 the vastness of the environment I almost started feeling like I was getting a little lost in it. And so I very much start to uh, be impacted by the environment, by the conditions of the place that I'm at. And I know that it's true for all of you here as well. You know how you're not so separated now from the hills and the grass and the lizards and the blue sky and the night sky with the stars and, and the trees and the gentle wind that uh, blows through and the, the warm sun, you know? That's all part of your experience here. You can't, you can't say that so much, well, well, my body stops here and then the nature starts there. There's, there's a sense of of connection and, and oneness and interrelationship between ourselves and the nature here. And it's always true. It's always true. But yet we get so busy 
we get so start moving so quickly and we get so involved in our roles and our jobs and the things that we do that we lose that sense we lose that sense of our connection of our of our uh, uh, boundlessness in some ways so we can start to feel into that when we're here something informs us something's revealed to us about the uh, the, the lack of isolation and individuality that we take to be so true when we're in our daily lives. This awareness of our connection with things in the Pali language in a way that this is called metta. Metta. It's, metta is our deep friendship with all things. That deep friendship, that deep connection with all things of life, when we're not bound up in the dualities and the separations and the fragmentations and divisions of our life, but that sense of deep friendship with all things. Metta means love or loving kindness. And so I think that love is another word for refuge. Love, that sense of, of being friendly with everything in life. And this is not necessarily a feeling. We almost automatically take love or metta as a feeling. It can be a feeling, but again, if it's a feeling, it moves it back into the realm of experience, and then we're going to want that experience, and we're going to think that if that experience isn't there, then uh, we're missing something, and something else has to happen. But it's not that. It's not an experience, this kind of love. This kind of love or this kind of connection is more of a knowing. It's just a knowing a knowing that lets us or allows us to feel our place in existence, that we know our place in things. This is not a dualistic love. It's not a love that has to do with self and other. When love becomes something that's dualistic, which is really the way that we mostly relate to love in our lives, then that love is localized in one person or one place or one time or one experience. That love gets localized as a feeling. But when we restrict love in that way, we cease to know its inherent quality in all existence. We cease to know that it runs through everything that connection, that friendship, that metta. If we we think that love has to do with ourself and another, then we will believe that it's dependent on certain conditions. We'll think it's only present in this person or in this experience. But Hamid, or uh, Almas, who I read the quote from before, Hamid says, love is the heart of existence. Love is the heart of existence. So I wonder if you're getting a sense 
of something. It's not a thing, but language falls apart. (laughs) As we start to touch or to taste or sense that which is here for us. As we let go of the impressions of the mind, as we start to feel in to more of our basic nature or simple or normal nature, something that's available for us all the time. Finding our true refuge, whether we call it love or faith, whatever we want to call it, it means we reconnect with our natural state that we have become separated from. As we start to access this, as we start to find our refuge more and more, we might say that it's a kind of a listening. You know, it's, we find, it's difficult to use words to because people say, well, how? How do I do this? How do I find it? Another metaphor that's quite useful is the metaphor of listening. And sometimes meditation is, is a metaphor for listening. It's a listening that happens when we quiet down the persistent noise of the ego. We just listen. We let go of the egoic tendencies, our prejudices, our beliefs, our opinions, our distorted ideas about things. And we quiet down. And as we start to listen, we begin to hear the quiet voice within that we say is the heart's response rather than the mind's response. Something that's very quiet within us. If we can listen, if we can hear, if we can hear that or listen to that which is hidden from us, hidden from our, natu- hidden from our normal view of our perception. So we have to get very quiet sometimes. And that's why when we're in nature, something's reflected back to us. Because we touch something, we hear something, we, can, we listen into something. We listen into what's hidden from us. This is from Rumi. Beauty surrounds us but usually we need to be walking in a garden to know it. All things we do are mediums that hide and show what's hidden. Study them and enjoy this, in, enjoy this being washed with a secret we sometimes know and then not. Study them and enjoy this being washed with a secret we sometimes know and then not. I'm going to end with this poem from Rumi because he's pointing to letting go of everything. You know, even letting go of all these words, letting go of this Dharma talk, letting go of everything and coming back into just that once again. Rumi says, Don't worry about saving these songs. And if one of our instruments breaks, It doesn't matter. We have fallen into the place where everything is music. 
the strumming and the flute notes rise in the atmosphere, and even if the whole world's harp should burn up, there will still be hidden instruments playing. So let's sit quietly and listen for the hidden instruments playing. May all beings live with confidence. May all beings live with trust. May all beings reconnect with their natural state. So it's 8.25 right now, and we'll have a half an hour for our walking meditation. And if the bell ringer would ring the bell at 5 to 9, then we'll come back at 9 o'clock for our last half hour together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.